0: Raw Ag is your link to the food chain and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you'll hear from the pioneers and innovators in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, regenerative, profitable and innovative. And we can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag brought to you by Tamania Angus and Ace Radio is your next big step in that direction.
1: Well, welcome to the um, second season of the Roar Podcast. I think it's um, episode five. And today I've got John McKillop with me. Um, John McKillop's been involved in s- numerous business roles, including the CEO of Hansat Australia, Managing Director of Clyde Agriculture, and is currently the CEO of S. Kidman and & Co. and Hancock Agriculture. Welcome to the Roar Podcast, John. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. And um, whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm up in a, I'm going to say
2: sunny Brisbane, but certainly a, a humid Brisbane. Um, yeah. You know, the last day of winter seems to be pretty much straight into the first day of summer.
1: It doesn't um, really change that much up there, though, does it? Doesn't change
2: a huge amount. Just the level of the humidity goes up and down. Yeah. That's about,
1: yeah. Mm. So, John, tell us a little bit about your past um, and how you got yourself. So as I suppose today's podcast I wanted to really sort of talk to you about um, a message for so that some of the younger listeners of the podcast about the fear of looking up at the hierarchy in agriculture, you know. And you're sort of probably up on the hierarchy a fair way, and um, your travel, your trip there, and um, where you've come from and how, how that's unfolded.
2: Sure. It um, always sounds a bit self-indulgent to talk about yourself, but, um, but, you know, if someone can take some learnings from it, they're always happy to do it. Yeah, so I was born and raised at uh, on a family farm out at uh, northwest New South Wales, a little place called Nibbati. And so we ran eighty cows, eighty hectares of cotton, and had eighteen percent interest rates. Um, so I uh, left in that in that environment. The farm, at the end of the day, was big enough for one family, but not big enough really to take um yeah, for a succession plan. So um, I went to Orange Ag College, um, did diploma of farm management, but then it. 27, um, decided that um, I couldn't really see how we went from that owning, being uh, with my parents owning a family farm to owning my own family farm, so decided to go off and see what was out there in the world. Um, I got a job as a rural financial counselor at Cowra, um, did that for three years. That was really interesting work, but you sort of get a very negative, distorted view of, of what agriculture is, because you're dealing with people who are, in most cases, not always, but um, are exiting agriculture because of debt and and other issues. Um, So um, at that point, I I also commenced study. Um, I did the next 11 years of of part-time study going from a degree, which I couldn't take the diploma up to a degree, so I had to start again. Um, And then I did a master's and a uh, undergraduate certificate in agribusiness. So, yeah, that was a a fair part of it. Um, And I might comment on that a bit later on. Yeah. Um, Did a few other jobs you know, and I suppose in consulting and then ended up um, getting into a, a role with Stanbroke Pastoral Company, which at the time was hundred percent owned by AMP. You know, twenty seven stations, thirteen point seven million hectares, and and ran five hundred and twenty five thousand head of cattle. And you gotta put that in context. We ran eighty cows at home. You know, so yeah, suddenly
1: a bit of a change. I go,
2: How did I get here? You know, like and a fair part of the a fair part of the reason I took the job was was this excitement of actually thinking, I'm going to get paid to actually fly around and and look at these places in the Barclay, in the Gulf, in the, you know, across um, uh, Queensland and Northern Territory. This is stuff that people would ordinarily pay to go and see. So for me, it was very exciting. Um, But, you know, after two years, well, A&P had owned, established Danbroke and owned it for 38 years. Two years after I joined, they decided to offload it. And um, it became the biggest Transaction at the time in Australian agriculture with you know four hundred and ninety million dollars. Then Peter I paid another ninety million dollar premium, and you know probably walked away with a, a pretty handsome profit in the order of um, a few hundred million. So um, it was very exciting to be part of that, and, uh, and that was the sort of the start of my journey into that into that corporate space. Um, then ended up going off to Elders for three years, and then into Clyde Agriculture, which is owned by the Swire family. Um, you know we restructured. A fair bit there, uh, sold controversially one um, Terrell at near Louth in Western New South Wales to the state and federal government, and um, but for the second time in my life, after 18 years of ownership, the swires decided to exit it. So yeah. um, I then set about uh, divesting that asset, and um, and then eventually ended up working for did a few boards, um, uh, Cubby Station, the large cotton property. Um, Meat and Livestock Australia, Dairy Australia, and then came across a full time role as the CEO of um, Hassad Australia, which is owned by Qatar Investment Authority. You know we, uh, you know we cropped seventy five thousand hectares across Australia. We ran two hundred and fifty thousand sheep and plus some cattle. So it was um it was an amazing time, but consistent with my previous roles. After eight years of ownership, Hassad, the um, the Qataris decided to sell, and Hassad went up for sale, and we offloaded that. To the majority of um of to macquarie but um also some private sales as well to the mcbrides and a few others so yeah so um avoid pretty keen to avoid ever getting into a uh, uh, into an executive role again having you know figuring that on the kiss of death for these properties i focused on non-executive roles
1: you arrive and they sell sort of
2: <laughs>
1: sorry, what was that sorry i said you arrive and they seem to sell
2: it's, it, it seems to be, a, 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 and, and it was number eight. It was 38 years for AMP. It was 18 years for Clyde, and it was eight years for Hassad. So <laughs> I figure I've just got to avoid something that's got eight in it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I ended up um, helping set up uh, a new real estate sales and valuation business called um, LAWD. Uh, worked as a non-executive director on Dairy Farmers, Milk Cooperative, Compass Agribusiness, and a few other ones. Um and then the opportunity came across to uh, run Gina Reinhardt's um, Hancock agriculture and which takes in Kidman and hopefully this one's not for sale um and hopefully we're on the other foot we've just got a few transactions in the pipeline that we're looking to to make so um I'm hoping this is the this is the one that uh that uh, doesn't mean that I've got four in a row that sell <laughs> so, well.
1: well no that's you know obviously a pretty amazing um a lot of experience that you've had. Tell us, what sort of traits do you think that you have that makes you um, sought after in agricultural um, corporate world?
2: Um, Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I I always think I I try whenever possible and and generally succeed in maintaining integrity. Um, I'm not a, you know, and I'll probably accept part part of the reason for some of those ones, probably in the case of Clyde, for why they did sell, because I tell it, how I see it. You know, um, if you can get four percent operating returns, you're doing pretty well. Um and and I think previously in some roles that people haven't always put it on the line the way it the way it works, you know, and over promised and under delivered. And um so I suppose it's that trait, and I, I suppose I've maintained that integrity and and hopefully maintained the reputation for having that integrity. So I think that's the main one. If, as long as you don't compromise yourself. I'm 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 actually if you ask me what my skill core skill is it, it's probably building teams um right. you know I, I look at the role as the ceo of, as not being technically the best at anything it's almost the greatest role you can have because you don't have to be actually good at anything other than getting people who are good at things it's like the the analogy i often use is like the conductor in a um, in an orchestra you know i'm not the best violinist i'm not the best um you know um drummer i'm not the best at any instrument but my role is to Pick those that are and bring them all together, you know, in one common theme.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, and and that probably leads a little bit onto the next question. I mean, it, for people who don't really understand what a day-to-day CEO in agriculture does, uh, what what you do day-to-day? I mean, so you're basically uh, your job is overseeing the structure and looking for areas where things can improve.
2: Yeah. So first and first and foremost, it's to set a strategy um, and agree a strategy, both with the the executive team um, as well as with the shareholders, who ultimately you know control the purse strings. So um, so I think once you've got your strategy set and agreed and and signed off, it's really about executing that strategy, and that can be anything from. Um, and I, I've over the years developed I'll call it the McKillop five P's of of setting a strategy and, and restructuring a business. The first one is portfolio do, do you have the right uh, portfolio of businesses um, and brands and in our case you know do we we've got we have a the Kidman business which is largely about a reasonable quality uh product but it's very much a commodity product so our space there is we have to be the lowest cost producer um it, very similar to what we have in western australia in the kimberley and the pilbara it's very much about producing a a, a product that meets market specifications um, but it's very much the same as many others have. So we have to be the low cost producer. If you look at what we've got in the Wagyu operation, we have a very large um, herd of full and pure blood Wagyus. We're averaging over eight um, marble score in our kills at the moment. So in that space, we're very much around that ultra premium market. Doesn't mean we don't have to be a low cost producer of it, but we've got scale where we can move up that food chain and, and really target into that market. So that's the first P portfolio. Second one is people. Once you decide your portfolio, what what people, uh, do you have the right people in the right place with the right skills? Um, and if you don't, do you need to go and look for those? Or can you train those people up to fill those gaps where you have them? Um, and that goes from people in terms of, are you paying them the right amount? Is the remuneration set properly? Uh, what training do you have in place? And how do you work with your, your graduate programs, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Uh, the third POSA is, is really about risk management and that's policies and procedures. So you've got to establish those and get make sure everyone understands. And that's from workplace health and safety, um, expenditure limits, um, how much risk are you prepared to take in the business? So for example, do you go out and say, we're gonna have 100% breeders on every property to fill that capacity. Um, and that's very tempting to do that because it's probably gonna be your highest return, but you'll get smashed in drought. So so that's the that's that policies and procedures, which really sets the framework by which people within, that, um, within the businesses um, can operate. Um, I would say then the, the fourth piece. Some people say you know it should be higher up, but I always say the fourth one being profit. Um, so once you've got your portfolio set, you've got the right people, you've got the right risk management tools in place, then you can focus into the profit. There's only three ways to adjust profit. You either increase your turnover, increase your margin, or decrease your overheads, or obviously any combination of those. So that's where you go through line by line and just look at where you can increase. You know, can we spend more money and in increase? So we, what we've done here in all our business units now is really have a focus on cost of production per kilo. That's our primary metric, whether that's Wagyu, whether that's um, our composite programs, either in the Kimberley or our composite program on the Barkley, um, or stuff coming out from the Channel Country or, or in the feedlot. It's all about focusing on cost of production because the only thing we sell is a kilo of, of um, live weight or a kilo of beef out the other end. Um, and then the final P is performance review. Uh, it took me a while to come up with that one <laughs> in front of it. <laughs> but that's going back and saying, uh, you know, is, is what we said we were going to do is what we achieved? And if we didn't achieve it, why didn't we achieve it? Um, and are there better ways to achieve it for the next time? And that then feeds back into that whole review process again to set the um, set the tone for the next year.
1: And so, you know, the, the example, the the advantages of corporate ag are that you have, you know, stru- structures and uh, strategies to move forward which are probably pretty academic and well thought out, probably the advantages of smaller family farms sometimes is their flexibility and speed at which they can change decision. How do you have a corporate structure that also has people on the ground that are um, moving fast to make decisions um, perhaps that um, need to be made there and then?
2: Yeah, it's a a really good point. You know, I often say that, um, you know, what we... What we achieve through scale in the corporate space, we, we usually destroy through corporate overheads, you know, because we have that extra layer. I'm sitting in an office in Queen Street in Brisbane at the moment, whereas I'm, I'm sure um, Tamania doesn't have that same overhead cost structure. So, um, so how do you get around it? it look, I, don't, I won't say for a second that we achieve it um, all the time. I think the family farmer is probably the most efficient unit. It's just how scalable it is. But... Um, so what we try and do is is within that framework to talk about those policies and procedures um, is say to the managers on the ground, as long as you're within that framework, it's your business to run. You run it how you want, how you see see fit, and we have certain levels of discretion. If, if you're under that discretion, don't even come back and talk to me about it or talk to the general manager in that group about it. Um, that's not always that easy because we have boards that, you know, may have a slightly different view around the levels of, of delegation. But my view is that, that don't come to me or don't come to your general manager and ask them how to run the property. You tell them how you want to run it and how you're going to maximise that, that return on capital for it and achieve the objectives, again, within that framework that's set by those policies and procedures, which is why they're so important that they're set and they're articulated and everyone understands them.
1: So I'd I'd like to come back to you as a young uh, agricultural person, who's um, and talk to those people at your age, at that age, sort of you know twenty to thirty-five or forty even, um, that you know looking up at the, and you and I know both of how daunting it was at that age to look up and wonder, wonder where you were going to do. Have you got any thoughts on, you know? Of or feelings about how what that was like for you
2: yeah it was um pretty daunting i i you know i look back now and think you know i how did i get here and how did i end up in this position having run you know three or four of the largest ag companies in australia um you know from a small family farm um so i suppose i've, I've got a few rules i suppose or advice that i'd give myself um and i think the first one. It, everyone's saying in life as in business you you don't get what you deserve you get what you negotiate and you need to learn the art of negotiation and master it it's so important in life because you know if you're sitting back and saying well i'm just going to get what everyone gives me in terms of salaries it's not just that in career advancement or in terms of when you're doing business negotiations you're really limiting yourself So, so you so negotiation is such a skill that you need to learn and i don't mean to think oh i'm pretty good negotiator there's a formal process or formal processes that you can learn in negotiation. Um, but in terms of other advice, I, I would say you you have to you have to study, in in my view, if you're wanting a career. Like it's not mandatory, but I, I want to walk into an interview knowing that I'm as qualified as anyone else is likely to walk into that room. You know, I have diplomas, I have the degrees, I have the masters. I'm a fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, um, and that may not be relevant. But I also don't want to feel inadequate going into that interview. That someone else might be more qualified than me, and I'm going to miss out on it. Uh, it doesn't have to be formal, you know. It can be informal education as well. But um, I think formal just gives you that those letters after your name. The uh, second, third one, I suppose, is work hard. You know, figure out where in that business you can add value. Uh, you know, I've gone into some roles, and I won't name them, thinking, I don't know how I'm going to add value to this business. You know, these guys must be slick at what they do, and then suddenly you get in there and realise that it's not that slick. Uh, there are things that you can do and there's certainly ways i can add value so always try to look for where that value add is um and and try never to to burn a bridge you know i think that's the main rule particularly in agriculture but i'm sure it's in other industries as well it's very tempting to get the shits and walk out and say well jam you i'm going but you know you will crush that person again or that organization again if you're staying in agriculture uh, because it's such a small industry to be in and to some extent, you have to, you know, fake it till you make it, go in there and you're as nervous as you can be, but you've still just got to work hard and work out how to add value. And mm-hmm. then over yep. time, you'll feel more confident in that role.
1: So you've mentioned that a few times, you know, um, how did I get here? And I suppose that's the inverse of um, being young and saying, how am I going to get there? Um And once you do get there, you wonder how you did it. Um, So um, imposter syndrome, you know, that's, um, I suppose that's that's sort of a a very honourable, slight self-confidence thing, is it?
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose it comes down to that fake it till you make it if you have to. But, you know, you go in there and go, you know, even now I'd say, you know, would I consider myself to be a cattleman? No. You know, but somehow I'm running an organisation that runs 300,000 cattle. Um, I mean, you'll, you'll forget by lunchtime, you know, more than I know about ca- the cattle um, and breeding and programming. <laughs> Um So you know, it's um, so. I, but again, I go back to that role of um, as the as the conductor. It, it's not my job to be the best genetic, you know, provider. It's not my job to be the best master, or you know, it's just that's not the role that I'm here for. That's not what some, If, if oh, I hope they haven't employed me for that because it's going to be a dismal failure. Um, I, mean, I think that sort of goes back to, I suppose, another point that I'd say is is you have to network within your industry, um, you know, and that's that's a confidence thing. I used to force myself to ask a question anytime I'd go to an ABS conference or anything else because I think it does two things for you. Um, it overcomes those nerves because I hated it at first, you know. I'd, I'd be this, God, I hope I've listened properly and I'm 30 years old and I'm going to ask this, that, you know, the Deputy Prime Minister a question about something or, you know, it's quite nerve-wracking. Um, But it does build your confidence and it does, you know, and then people come up afterwards and say, oh, that was a good question or whatever they say. And that's just building those networks. Um, And that's a lifelong journey that you're in, you know, those connections that that you make and they'll stay with you for life. Um, And and it pushes you outside your comfort zone. Um, And I think the other thing is, is maintaining your integrity. And I've talked about that before. That's the advice I'd give everyone, you know, just don't sell yourself short because you know, you could be in this career for 30, 40, 50 years and uh, and people will forget uh, that you will will remember, I should say, that you you breached your integrity. Um, And uh, that's
1: also, that's different to being really, uh, because being really humble can sometimes be a bit um, reducing as well, you know, like it mightn't give you the opportunities that you want. So you can be honest about your capabilities too, can't you?
2: Well, yeah, I, th- I even say to people going in for an interview, you know, be confident but not cocky. Yeah, and I think that's that balance is um, is maintaining that humility. Don't take yourself too seriously. You can always find something to laugh uh, at.
1: Yeah, humility is um, probably not the right yeah. yeah, so it is difficult, isn't it? Because um, you know, I, I've, I I struggle with the word pride all the time. You know, because um, you know, it can be described as a sin. And pride the opposite of humility. So, um, yes, where where I mean, where is that line?
2: Yeah, and I, I suppose that's you know I I think it's confidence. You know, it's it's confident but not cocky. You know, I you see those people that breach it and they just think, yeah, quite frankly, their shit doesn't stink and they're the best thing since sliced bread. But but you know, can they deliver on it? Um, you know, whereas I I, I I again I suppose I I'm probably more uh, humble now than I was 20 years ago. You know, um, and because I realise that you, um, it's not a trait you want to pursue. Being that overly confident, cocky person.
1: So, if you're interviewing someone like that and you think that they're too good to be true, do you sort of think that possibly they are too good to be true?
2: Generally, I mean, you know, it's it, it, said before. You know, as you said, you know, you don't want to undersell yourself. You don't want someone to interview you and saying, "Oh, I can't really do this" or "I couldn't really do that." You think, "Oh, well, they probably can't, so I won't employ them." But yeah, conversely, that the person who oversells himself in an interview and says, oh, I can do everything, you know, I'm just, I'm <laughs> the greatest and I've done that, then.
1: Good all around it, everything, as everyone knows.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, particularly I think the rural people like us, you you, you can smell bullshit fairly yeah. quickly. Yeah. So uh, you tend to steer away from those ones probably equally as much as those who, who uh, you know, will undersell themselves to a large extent.
1: So you've probably covered a bit of this, but, you, you know, you're a uh, you're a young Australian agricultural enthusiast who wasn't going back on the farm. What advice would you have for those sorts of people that are um, really enthusiastic, and there's lots of them at the moment, the universities are packed, which is really exciting, um, with people that perhaps don't have the opportunity to go back on farm, on the yeah, I mean, family lot, farm, yeah. Yeah, there's lots of
2: careers in agriculture and... and um and for those who don't have the opportunity to go back or can't see a pathway to get there uh, and that's the the amazing thing you've almost got to open people's eyes to it you know um is it in technology you know you can be an it specialist and working in agriculture and things like series tags or databases of information or robotics you know, there, there's a whole world out there that's you know the ag tech space is huge um if you have a finance bent, you can be working in you know, in the accounting side, and the finance side. Um, if you're more relationship driven, you might want to go down the banking path and and um, and work in the banking system, but you're still within the agribusiness sphere. Grain trading, for example, is still in that sphere. You know, meat processing, meat marketing, there's all great opportunities out there and, and, you know, they pay pretty well. Even staying back on the, you know, going on and managing someone else's farm, you know, you're, you're talking pretty good packages now. Uh, that will allow you to educate your kids um, at, at schools you want to and will allow you to create some wealth outside it so um I, I think there's a whole world of opportunity out there and it's really good to see you know when you go to something like that marcus olden foundation uh cocktails and you, and you meet some of the young ones and you see how enthusiastic they are about agriculture it's really quite uh it's, it's really good to be part of it and i often think that if i left school in 2020 rather than Want to say what, 1982, um, would I have a different outlook on life? Uh, because at the time, it was a pretty negative period. Yeah, yeah. it was. People yeah. weren't making money. People were, uh, everyone knew someone had gone broke. Um, interest rates were heading towards or at, you know, 18%. Uh, whereas I left today, I, I think I'd probably be inclined to probably even have a crack at taking on the family farm, albeit small, but that's not to say that I've, you know, I've had an amazing career. and am still having a, an amazing career, and, I, and I've, you know, travelled all over the world as a result of it, so I've seen some amazing things. It's never either or, but um, either one would have been an option.
1: Yep. So you've done a fair bit of agri, agri, agri-politics, or ag, agri-politics, Um you know, the, you're, you've been on the Meat Advisory Council or the independent chair, is that right? Or the, yeah, yeah. So, current, so
2: currently independent chair of the Red yeah, Meat. Sorry, Ad-
1: currently. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about um, what the Red Meat Council does. Okay. So um, the Red Meat Advisory
2: Council sits above um, cattle council, sheep producers, um, goats, um, processors, uh, the live exporters and the feedlots. Um, its primary role, Jordan Anderson set it up in 19... 19- 80, 1998 um, and it's one of its primary roles is to advise the minister on whole supply chain policies um, we also do a lot within that um, within the lobbying area where it goes across the whole supply chain so if it's just a cattle issue it'll be with cattle council if it's just a live trade issue it sits with live cook. if it's a an issue that like foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease that goes across the whole industry um, then Armac Red Moon Advisory Council, becomes involved. Um, so um, so when we first got lumpy skin disease, or it was in, sorry, we didn't get it, when Indonesia was first notified that they had it, along with Fiona Simpson from the NFF and um, the dairy industry, we formed the first of the industry task force on lumpy skin disease. And that's now ex- extended into um, to include foot and mouth disease. So we've also taken in the pork industry and wool industry um so we meet every well, it was every month every week sorry now it's every fortnight um and we advise the minister on what you know how what we think should be done and the department um and they inform us of what's happening and then we conversely um, liaise with the broader community on it we' we're holding have we held three webinars so far which have been well attended and there's a fourth one coming out in a couple of weeks so That's that's the sort of role uh, that Armac does. Um, It's not fully understood. It runs on a shoestring. We have a budget of four hundred and twenty thousand a year, so it's um there's not a lot of cash. Uh, The other part of Armac is we manage the red meat industry fund, which sits at forty odd million dollars, and that helps fund those uh, cattle council, sheep producers, alpha, et cetera,
1: et cetera. It might be me, perhaps, but I find you know being involved in decision making processes in Ag, really quite frustrating and slow. There seems to be so many intertwined—I'm um, not going to say conflict of interests, but people's views and points of views and um, issues. How do you find yourself in those in those situations, working through that? And what are the tricks?
2: Yeah. I, again, I, I suppose I always try and keep politics out of it, and that sounds funny when you're sort of head of a of a advisory council, but. You know within this whole process of lumpy skin disease you know there were some who wanted to get bogged down in who should be on the task force do we have the right to form this thing called crime act which is when we activate um a certain level of awareness and and, and we go into a certain mode um i just i suppose i just steered away from it and said look i don't really care what we call it i don't care who's really on it we you know, we've got to keep it tight let's just get on and do make sure stuff is happening and mm. um and I suppose as long as you focus on the end game and not focus on on the people in it, um, then you're keeping the politics out of it and you're getting on with doing things. And I think people respect that and and they're quite happy to get on board and see that okay something's happening, things are working. Uh, let's not worry about all the semantics and the uh, and the politics around it. So so stay- I, I, that's why I've approached this one, and it's, look, so far it seems to be working.
1: Stay stay pragmatic. Stay pragmatic. Just um, um, go to the, look at
2: the end goal of what you're trying to achieve and, and not uh, not who's getting in your way of achieving it.
1: Yeah, and that's very corporate too, isn't it? Let's see the science, um, assess the science, believe the science. It's the next step because how often do you go into some meetings and um, after the meeting, um, you know, the people are meant to be making a pragmatic decision about the science have just heard Then sit around and discuss whether the science is true or not. Um, yes, you know that, and that, that frustrates me um, because we're really not in a position to decide that. Um, no. So no, I think you and I saw that some years ago, didn't
2: we? we, <laughs> <laughs> we so
1: yeah. yeah. Well, that's still going. Then that that sort of uh, the multi-breed yeah. issue that we're facing in um, beef. You know, that's it seems so obvious. Um, the facts that you know, if you put more animals in an analysis and um, and um great, create greater diversity and speed the generation interval and you're going to get more ge- genetic gain for the entire nation so why, why don't we just do it
2: yes and and uh, but it, remarkably enough the dairy industry achieved it um and uh, you know everyone just sort of put down their weapons and said okay well let's the market's shrinking we can sit here and accept that it's, we're going to have purely american genetics in the next 10 years or we can actually do something about it and Mm. Uh, Drop the guard about which breeds better than the other, and actually work on a multi-multi breeds um, database, and that's what's happened, and it's, it's been a great thing for the industry.
1: John, uh, obviously, on a family farm situation, uh, succession is something that needs to be addressed, and it's very emotional and difficult. At a corporate level, corporates also create succession for their key personnel in the business. Can you tell us a bit about how that gets planned so that you don't get any you know, large surprises or someone that's really important to you can start to pass on their wisdom before they retire?
2: Yes, um, I suppose my succession planning has been that they've, they've sold me, so <laughs> they taken care of that. But um, but so what we would normally do, and we haven't quite done that in this role given that I've only been in it nine or ten months, but um, for each senior position, we would have a succession plan um, for that role and and given that we're, you know, obviously ag companies are generally small compared to the banks or other large organizations so sometimes there's not a lot of choice but it may have um you know the CEO's role would be might list least two or three people who are alternates um you know possible successions and we might then say but most probably we'll go to market um being the board will go to market to to find another CEO yeah um, you'll have um Um, And then you have within that, um, of those two people we've identified internally, these are the training, these are the weaknesses, and this is where we'd need to work on to get them to that point of being ready to take on a CEO's role. Um, Under that, you might have a bit more structure where you have a general manager role. um, What's the, who are the likely internal candidates for that? Um, Probably won't have to go to market, but these are the weaknesses again, and these are where the areas we'd need to work on and strengthen if we're going to get that person um, those identified, and that normally they would be either analysts or people under uh, currently on the farm. Um, how to get them ready? So, so it's a very formal process, and it's um, always signed off by the board, the shareholders. Um, and it doesn't always work perfectly because you know one of your succession um, candidates actually moves on to another role. But that doesn't mean it's it's got to be a living document. But you're constantly doing it, and the good thing is it's no emotion in it. It's not. Yeah. It's not someone sitting there saying, oh, I'm not going to give up this role for anyone. It's it's uh, we, we work for people for wage and salary. It's not our call. Um, but I do think that, you know, I've seen it in, in a few organisations where um, a CEO or MD stays on far too long uh, and begins to believe their own infallibility. You know, the great quote someone said to me the other day, the graveyard is full of um, irreplaceable people.
1: Yeah, and the difference in family farm succession is the matriarchal Patriarch that delivers the divides the fairness amongst everyone, and and it's that fairness that becomes really quite tricky, isn't it? Well, yes, yeah, it is. Um, yeah,
2: you've just got to, and you know, and as in a corporate, we're far more clinical about it. Yeah,
1: um, no, it's interesting, yeah. Um, and so that's sort of, um, obviously, we're seeing a little bit of, um, and I've we're seeing a bit of a, um, mental health issue in ag particularly, um, you know, um, do you see that sort of thing in your corporate business and what do you do for staff members? Is there any, you know, formal um, connection that you make?
2: Yeah, we have um, we have a mental health program um, and we certainly um, have access to online support. If anyone feels that they can't talk to anyone internally, there's a, a, a helpline that we pay for. Yeah. For people to access it. Um, yeah, we, we, we certainly take it seriously. We, we know that people are working in isolation. Um, you know, they're out in the Channel Country. They're 400 kilometres from the nearest, you know, tin pot town. Um, and and some of them are coming straight out of school. Some of them are coming straight out of the city, you know, and, and this is all new to them. And so yeah. we, are, we are as aware as we can of trying to um, encourage people to access mental health support, you know, where they can. So Because it's not an easy... It's not an easy job to do and um, sometimes you don't hear about it until they've left um so we don't certainly don't always get it right but yeah i I know my own you know my own space you know uh, and quite open it was it's pretty hard being sold up three times you know and i think particularly one that got me was being sold up at clyde i would always wanted that job you know it was the dream job for me um it was around where i grew up you know i knew the people i'd i'd some of the managers had been lifelong friends with me. And, and when that was sold, it, you know, I didn't actually get another full-time job for a couple of years. Uh, and i got to say it was a fairly tough period for me, um, you know, but but I I go back into what stirs me up and I, you know, and I, I was a lit Barwon Heads, um, as you know well. And, you know, I was talking to a surfer one day and he was telling me that about the story. He said, I've just... I was out one day and I was I, I caught this massive wave. It was a great southerly, um, well, the northerly was coming back on the after three days the southerlies, huge, huge waves. And he said I, I fell off and I got I got pinned to the ground. You know I was I was my back was against the rocks. I could feel the the barnacles in in my back, and the water pressure was so immense. And he said I, I thought I was actually going to die. I, you know felt so much pressure. And he said and suddenly the the wave the water lifted. I got to the top and i just took the biggest breath i'd ever taken and i said what'd you do then and he said i went straight back out and i said why would you go straight back out having just gone through that he said because it's what i love doing and i suppose for me that's the analogy i look at it and say how do you get back up after a drought or after a low commodity price or after something's gone wrong you just got to love what you do And, um, and if you do that then you can lift yourself up you can take a breath and you can go back out again.
1: Thanks, John. So we're um, got getting to the end of our uh, podcast, and we ask these difficult questions. Um, mistakes? What mistakes have you made?
2: Um, probably a couple of occasions I've taken jobs that I know I shouldn't have taken. Um, you know, I I knew that there was going to be wrong. I knew it wasn't going to work. Um, but you know, either the money was there, or I thought it. You know, I thought I could change things enough so probably taking roles that I I shouldn't have taken
1: right yeah and and um, masterpieces
2: um yeah I, I, I think um You've
1: uh, got lots of them
2: <laughs> but yeah, you know um, yeah learning negotiation I think you know I actually formally studied it and did number of courses on it and I think that's probably that That along with study and um, you know has been and there's been a couple of little deals along the way but um but yeah I think for me personally, that journey of of sticking to what you do and uh, and studying and networking has really been the masterpieces for me that have kept me in good stead.
1: And what mentors have um, set you on the right track and helped you along the way? Um,
2: I, had a, I had a couple of, I'll say, uh, people above me, managers, um, who, who were dreadful. And I think I learned as much from them as I did from... <laughs> <laughs> uh, others like john murray um who was the head of ridley and and um he was my boss at elders but only for about a year but john had this great style of 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 really joint problem solving you know other bosses would say well you need to do this why is not that happened why is not this happened john okay well john i'm seeing this issue here what what are you seeing And say yep i'm seeing it too and you know i've got three options here we could do let's explore those it was that really a really great management style that wasn't trying to be the dictator or the holder of all knowledge. It was just that person who could talk an issue through, you'd agree a course of action, and then off you'd go and execute. Yeah. And, and that, for me, that's the style I've tried to mimic as much as I can.
1: Yeah, and so a mentor sometimes comes into your life and and you learn from the experience of being with them. And that learning process is very powerful, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah, and, um, you know, I've probably never had the – the formal mentor that, um, that I think we, we do more now. Days, which I think yeah. great thing. Yep. You and know, I just think it's such a, um, such a good thing. So I, I'm part of the university of Melbourne's mentoring program for the graduate. Um, I'm not doing it at the end of the year because of time, but, um, and I've had two students and they've both been international students. And I think, I don't know what I'm going to tell them, but then you realize they actually don't understand the Australian ag sector. Hmm. And so, a fair part of it is just talking through how the structures work. How does the R and D sector work? How does the public sector, the private sector work? What's the role of MLA, Dairy Australia? And I say, and both of those uh, are now gainfully employed. Ones in the dairy industry and ones in the meat processing industry. So that's a really, uh, I suppose, for me personally, fulfilling to see those people come in, not understanding anything about how it works, and then staying in that industry.
1: Thanks, John. Also, thank you for all your contribution to ag because uh, it's massive. And I know that, um, you know, not only in your little mentoring programs, but you do a lot behind the scene to make sure that you're picking people up from time to time. So thank you very much, John. And um, best of luck with uh, your, I suppose it's still a new appointment, is it?
2: Relatively new. Yeah, yeah, eight or nine months or
1: something. Yeah. Well, best of luck. Thanks, John.
2: Thanks, Tom. Great to talk to you.
0: The Rorag Podcast is a collaboration between Tamani Rangus and the Ace Radio Network. If you're enjoying The Roarag Podcast, make sure you leave a review or rate us on your favourite podcast app.